Welcome to The Bridgehead with Jonathan Van Maren, bringing you cutting-edge news, commentary, and interviews from the front lines of the culture wars. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead. We're so glad you could join us again. Today we have a bit of a different show for you because I got an interview I've been pursuing for quite some time. Now, uh, many of you will know that we've done quite a few different shows that involve talking to people uh, who are on the ground in different areas. We recently talked to uh, Lord George Wedenfield of the British House of Lords and talked to him about how he was rescuing Christians from Syria. We talked to Steve Maman, who has negotiators on the ground in Iraq trying to rescue uh, the slaves, the Yazidi and Christian slaves from the ISIS troops. But somebody I've been wanting to speak to for quite some time is a defector from North Korea. She recently wrote a book called The Girl with Seven Names, a North Korean defector story. And her name is Yeonseo Lee. And she writes a very blunt, straightforward book on how horrifying it was to live inside North Korea. Now, North Korea, of course, is so closed off from the outside world that a lot of things we know about it come from satellite imagery. But her book is second only, I think, to the book uh, Escape from Camp 14, about one of the North Korean uh, concentration camps, because the things that she talks about were so normal for her that she had a hard time adjusting to... uh, normal life afterwards. She talks about witnessing public executions at an extremely young age. She talks about just having to to snitch on people uh, as a matter of course, about how everyone was always suspicious of each other in North Korea. This The book reads sort of like a like a modern day thriller, but it really gets to sort of the, the dull, monotonous menace of everyday totalitarianism and just how brutal it is. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to a North Korean defector as well is because of the situation regarding Christians in North Korea. Now, for as many of you will know, that Christianity is actually illegal in North Korea. They are permitted tra- their traditional North Korean beliefs, and they are permitted atheism, and that's all. Now, the dictator that's currently Kim Jong-un is, of course, so paranoid of the power of Christianity that those caught with Bibles can be executed. And Open Doors, which is a, an organization serving persecuted Christians around the world, has rated North Korea's persecution level as extreme. But even though this is the case, out of 25 million people living in North Korea, there are 300,000 Christians. But for 13 years in a row, North Korea has been ranked number one on the world watch list of 50 countries where persecution of Christians is most extreme, because the godlike worship of the leader Kim Jong-un, and then of course his predecessors like Kim Jong-il, leaves no room for other religions, especially not a religion like Christianity, which often has such an impact on the society around it. And anyone discovered engaging in Christianity, going to church, reading the Bible, talking to other people about Christianity, are subject to arrest, arbitrary detention, disappearance, which almost surely means execution or internment in a concentration camp, uh, or torture. And torture is something very common in totalitarian places like North Korea. There's about 50 to 70,000 Christians imprisoned 
in labor camps. And many Christians don't even have enough food to survive and are forced to flee to China. And there is unrelenting pressure from government spies who try to find out from Christians uh, where their families are, what their beliefs are, and then to, to uh, essentially persecute them in a way that is unimaginable here in the West and even unimaginable in, in other countries that might not actually be friendly towards Christianity. So Hyunsu Lee just recently wrote a book called The Girl with Seven Names, as I mentioned previously, and she's currently on a, on a tour uh, giving lectures and talks about life inside North Korea and talking about her book. And uh, I managed to reach her at her hotel in Amsterdam while she was stopping there uh, to give a presentation. So I'd like to present to you a conversation with a defector from North Korea. So uh, what was it like, in, 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 in a few words, to grow up in North Korea? You wrote about this in The Girl with the Seven Faces, and you talked about having a lot of really mixed feelings. Yes. Yeah, um, actually, until I knew the real world, until I see the outside world out of North Korea, I thought my country was paradise. Even though we were suffered a lot, but I didn't know that we were suffering because uh, I never tasted freedom or you know democracy or there's no no country compare could compare with my own country. So you know we had really a lot of oppressed life, entire our life. Like we lived in a virtual prison. But since we didn't know anything about the outside world, and then the regime told us that we are the most happiest human being. That's why we just believed. Because especially, you know, we were divided country with South Korea and uh, the regime told many bad things about the outside world, like America or capitalism countries, you know, there are many people dying in front of hospital or people can't pay for their tuition, so they can't even go to school. They didn't even look, see how the school looked like. Or, you know, like South Koreans are, we learned the South Koreans from the picture that the picture was that they didn't have shoes and then their pants were ripped off because they didn't have clothes and they didn't have shoes to wear. So in the winter, they were wandering on the street. So when, whenever we see that, I feel like a really lucky by having the dear leader because at least I have shoes. We don't have to suffer that much. And then we are not you know, suffering under the America's colonized because the regime told us that South Korea, the reason South Korea is so poor because America is colonizing and then they are killing South Korean people. That's right. why we were so proud of that, being born inside North Korea. Uh, you write in your book a, a lot about how North Korea bred this paranoia of, of telling on your neighbors, reporting these tiny infractions. Oh, yeah, yeah. But was there some semblance of a normal childhood even with that, because I guess if you grew up knowing that, that was that was normal. Yeah, because um, yeah, as I said, you know, everything in North Korea we have normal, which is later I found it's totally crazy. Because uh, yeah, growing up in the environment that we witnessed the public executions, we grew up with the public executions, and uh, you know, just a whole family disappeared in the middle of the night after they made a mistake by saying wrong things. So, you know, I experienced my friend's father, the whole family, because of he said, you know, the, this, this system is unfair, and then his whole family disappeared in the middle of the night. That's really horrible. And then, and even when I was young, 
that my mom trained me that many times that even when I was young told me that let me be careful about what I'm saying in the outside, especially let me not repeat the words what I hear at home because we know, you know, usually as kids making mistakes, if we heard something from our parents, we could easily repeat from in the outside and then they cause big problems. That's why we in North Korea, we couldn't trust anyone, even between husband and wife, because after divorce, they could tell to the government about the other person's behavior. So we could only trust you know, parents and siblings. That's all, because we, the environment, just made us like that. And then we have a self-criticism session in North Korea. I think that's the only country have this ridiculous session. During that session has every Saturday, all of the country, from the school to the, you know, grandmother, grandfather, every factory, every farmers, every companies, every diplomat, professor, they have to attend this session every Saturday as a North Korean citizen. And then in that session that we have to criticize each other, we must criticize. Instead of we learning, you know, giving other people, giving them, showing them kindness or giving them a compliment, we never learned that. We just only learned that criticize each other. If I don't criticize the other person, I will be in huge trouble, so we must. So mm-hmm. during that session that we learned that we have to, if we see something not right thing, we have to tell to the government. We thought that's the way loyal to the government. That's the only way. That's why we didn't feel it's guilty because, uh, yeah, growing up in the in that environment, we were completely ignorant in the society. You wrote that public executions were mandatory even for the children. Yes, yeah, because... Um, I finished my first public execution when I was seven. Actually, it was a really quite early age. I even didn't know when I see the first public execution, if there was a public execution because I never knew about that. It was the first experience. And then I'm just shocked to see a man was hanging by his neck under a railroad bridge. It was hanging. In North Korea, we have a lot of shootings in public execution, but at that time, I saw it was hanging, but I'm assumed by this time, the hanging disappeared in North Korea. But, and then just, you know, in school, it, it's mandatory that the regime, you know, worried that during the public execution, maybe not many people will be attend in the public execution. The reason they're having public execution is to show people, you know, if you make some mistakes or you are, you know, against the regime, government, you'll be killed exactly the people in front of you. That's the message they want to tell. That's why they put every school, every company's factories, put them in, you know, mandatory to watch those public executions. And then, you know, many people were killed in many absurd reasons, like, you know, a person who killed a cow or, you know, a person who stolen a rice from a factory or from a farm to feed his starving family. And, you know, smugglers, fortune tellers, homosexuals, and defectors like me, you know, and for alleged Solskjaer spies. So, you know, the, even though people who saw the public execution were usually terrified, because usually, you know, 
right now the regi when regime kill people, they're using rifles. And right now these days they're using machine guns. It's more insane. But what I saw was a rifle at the time. <sighs> if we use shooting a human's head, just to the head, brain, blood, all explode. It's insane to see that. It's just many people actually, some of them, they are fainted on site immediately after see that. And then the constant public execution will keep reminding me that I shouldn't do anything to disobey all the government. Uh -huh. Otherwise, you know, I will be killed exactly like the victim in front of me. And that's the reason I wanted to promote. Uh -huh. Besides the things that you've mentioned, what sorts of things could get you executed in North Korea? That's the only thing. And, uh, yeah, mostly, you know, who also, you know, like these days, you know, they're killing a lot of uh, high-ranking officials. And that this is not really recent story, because even during Kim Il-sung, our first dictator and our second dictator, Kim Jong-il, during that time, we also saw they killed many, you know, high-ranking officials. And then the regime always, you know, when they kill high-ranking officials, they kill on purpose to put all the blames to put on their body. Because, for example, in in the 1995, during the mid-1990s, we had a big famine in North Korea, and then many people we had many people suffered at the time. And then the regime had to, you know, kill somebody to put all the um, what is the all the things blamed to put on somebody, and then they killed in public execution that. He was the Minister of Agriculture in North Korea, and then she killed him. They killed him in publicly, and then they said, you know, the reason in North Korea that farm has not really a lot of productivities or, you know, that's the reason, the reason was because of him, and he was a South Korean spy. That's why he, as the Minister of the Department, he, on purpose, you know, something distracted for our farmers, some of the productivity, everything, so that we have the, that situation right now, many people had to suffer, something like that. And then people believed, and then they read things, wow, just crazy. How as the high-ranking official can be a source can spy, and that he deserved to die, like that. So like even today, they putting all, all the, you know, guilties to, to somebody's, somebody's, and then they're just putting in execution. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, and these days many they are also killing defectors, even including defector families. And especially you know the defectors, as I'm North Korean defector, who was caught in China, they are not in public execution. They are the ridiculous thing is that they can be tortured and imprisoned, and then the worst thing they can send to public political prison camp. But the defectors who were caught on the way to come to South Korea who were caught in the middle of it, then it's obvious that they are trying to go to South Korea instead of China. Then there's no doubt they will be in, you know, political prison camp and that, you know, political in public execution. So that's really worse the situation. But, you know, Chinese government, they are still keep sending North Korean defectors back to North Korea. There's a lot in the news uh, over the last couple of years about Christians in North Korea being executed for things like owning Bibles. And, of course, religion is, is quite rare in North Korea. Did you know of anyone in North Korea during your time there who, who was religious? We, yeah, recently there's uh, some information that because of the outside 
Christians, I mean, like in other countries, are trying to, you know, tell North Korean people about the about the religious, and then they are keep sending Bibles or. That's why there's some North Koreans are aware of this situation, but not many, not that many. But when I was growing up, we never knew about religious. I didn't even know there's a, in this world that there's a religious exist, and then I didn't know who was God. I thought you know God was a the Kim Il Sung and Kim Jong Il or first dictator, because I seriously not only me, all citizens. I think more than ninety percent of citizens seriously believed he was God. They were God. That's why I even believe who didn't go to the bathroom or who smoke or didn't have drinks. So yeah, and then they were all gods. And then especially you know we if you know we see some foreign movies. Sometimes the regime showing you know Chinese movies or Indian movies or sometimes some outside movies. And then they are cutting a lot of scene if there's some related you know the God. A lot of the symbols, the cross symbols, or about the love scenes, those things that they are cutting in the middle of the movie. Just, we can see clearly the movie scene was cut out and then just connected with a different scene. It's really common. So it's, that's why, you know, when I came to South Korea 2008, even though I lived in China for 10 years, but when I arrived in, China, in South Korea, I saw a lot of Red Cross signs on the on the top of the building, a lot of red cross sign, and then I see it. That's the only sign in North Korea. It shows that hospital sign, red cross. That's why I thought, wow, there's so many hospitals in South Korea. Just too many I found. But later, actually, I found it was not the hospital. Actually, it was the church, and uh, like that. We are we just completely, you know, we didn't know about the religious. But yeah, outside people, there is some of People knew that in North Korea we have a two fake churches in Pyongyang that's made by the regime for the propaganda to show outside visitors that they were willing to show that the North Korea is free from the religious. We have the Christian something. They wanted to show that. That's why they perform performing. But in that church, you know, there's a all the members is workers in the church. They are all North Korean agents. They are seriously trained spies. So, but some of people outside people they're confused. They thought that's a real church. How naive! I mean, those people. We told them that this is a not real church. But yeah, this is the reality. You said that you grew up in North Korea during a famine in the early 1990s, and yet you've still said that some of your happiest memories are are from from North Korea. How did you manage to? Stay happy growing up through such an awful time. Uh, because uh, I didn't suffer uh, personally because uh, um, in North Korea we have a social hierarchy system. So from the moment when I was born, I realized that I was lucky to being born in the nice family background. So depends because of our grandparents' uh, background, they're because according to that that we were divided into three different you know status inside North Korea, so that's why I feel like uh, while other people suffering, I didn't suffer, and then we lived not really completely belong to so many other ordinary people, so 
I didn't see that problem that much, but when we had a big famine from 1995, at that time so many people were suffering, even, you know, from my friends. And then at that time, I slowly began to learn the, the reality inside North Korea. So, yeah, I was really sad to see that, you know, even from 1997, I saw people dying on the street. And I thought, you know, the people dying, I saw people dying in movies or novels for starvation in the past. But I could never imagine that my country people can die for starvation on the street. So, yeah, that's the main reason to made me to cross the border into China. Because, you know, yeah, because I... As I said in my book that I read this letter from a woman, whole family, her five family members were dying for starvation. They didn't have food for weeks. And it was the first time for me. It was really shocking that people could even die. And then soon, you know, I saw even the mother, baby's mother was dying you know, in front of the train station on the ground. She was dying there. So... Because I was living right next to the border, the border town usually, because they have usually nice life compared to other people, especially and then because of my father and my mother's job, I never experienced money problems. But since I was living right next to the border with China, and then all television could pick up Chinese TV signals, and then I watched secretly, even though it's illegal inside North Korea, if we were caught, we would be severely punished. But I watched, and then it completely transformed my life, because uh, I even we even learned that North Korea was superior to China, but to me, you know, China much looks awesome than North Korea. They are, looks much more rich than North Korea or economically developed. And that why I saw, you know, during daytime people die on the streets and then at night from the Chinese TV, what I saw was completely colorful, you know, different. And uh, even I was living right next to the border. So at night we had a lot of power shortages. So we were living completely in a black hole at the time. Even today, even today, there's nothing changed. And then China seems they never had power shortages. Every night they had lights, even street lights, including neon signs. So everything just at the time changed. So while many people left the country for starvation, because they knew that if they stay in North Korea, they will be die. So just die in North Korea or die when they're crossing the border or die in China, there's not big difference for them. That's why many people at the time across the border but my situation was um i just you know i want to see the differences you know i just i don't know if the tv chinese tv what i saw was real or fake you know i just because of watching chinese tv there's a strong desire to adventure outside the world and then it made me cross the border but you know at the time that I didn't know that would be the last minute in my life with my hometown, and I would be separated from my family for so long. How did you actually escape? It's, it's, in some ways, in some of the books from North Korean defect, it sounds very difficult, and in other books, it makes it sound uh, a, a far easier, even though the ramifications are quite severe. How did you make it out? Yeah, most defectors crossing the border, they have to take huge risk with their life, but because uh, I even saw, you know, right, living right next to the border, that 
some people even thrown into water, and then the dead body was floating down the river during the famine. And when we go early in the morning to the border, because my home was right next to the border, and then if when we open the door, sometimes we could see the dead bodies was uh, covered with a straw bag. But yeah, that's really dangerous. But my situation was uh, I crossed the border during the winter time, so winter time we have a frozen ice river, so it's completely like frost, so I can't cross the river into the China, but because of the military border guards, are they are guarding the area very severely. It, to me, like, they are per, per 50 meters, uh, two militaries are, the armed militaries, they are guarding the border, and then because uh, I was living right next to the border, we had a really good relationships with the border guards, that the militaries. They were like my uncles or my elder brothers. You know, we we they are sleeping in our house or you know we share meal together. It's like a family. That's why just uh, they couldn't even imagine that I was not coming back to North Korea. Even certainly I didn't know myself too. So they helped me to cross the border and the where to go. So it was really easy compared to other North Korean defectors. But that's why, you know, as I described in my book that when I crossed the moments, you know, I even wear really fancy red shoes that it's really, it's, with the shoes can't work that far actually, but I feel I didn't know at the time the meaning of escaping the country or the the meaning of refugees, everything, because we certainly never learned about the refugee, those words, human rights, words, freedom, those things, and then I thought I was coming back soon, but that was the last minute, so I just crossed the frozen ice and then the military guards who helped me at the time, soon he had a big problem. And uh, yeah, that I wrote in my book the long stories, but yeah, not because of me, but there's another issue related. That's why he had a huge problem. And how did you get your family out? Once you got to China, once you got out, you decided to try to get your mother and your brother out. How did that happen? Yeah, um, because... Uh, you know, I've been separated from my family so long, and then although I had a lot of difficult life for my long journey, it's like a roller coaster. But the reason made me to continue to made me to not give up in the long journey because of the hope to meet my family one day. So when I in 2008, when I finally found my freedom in South Korea by seeking asylum to South Korea, and then. I just learned actually my family had always had problem in North Korea because of me since the moment I escaped North Korea that my mom had to my you know my mom's best friend in her company she was spying on her for 6 years she was reporting my mom's every daily you know life daily schedules she had to report to the North Korean agent and then all neighbors spying on my mom my family so my mom's there. My family lived like in a you know prison, you know. So my mom always told me she was in huge stress living in that environment, and then especially because of the defectors' family members, the left behind mem behind members members, they will have serious problem because we, they were always in danger of sending you know the to the banished 
forcibly banished to the countryside, to the mountainous areas where it is extremely difficult to survive. And then at the year 2009, we had the same problem that my family member, the name was on the list to banish to the countryside. And then that means let them die in the mountain. They can't survive. So at the time, I took huge risk by bringing them out. And then I also, the second reason was uh, I just want to show my mom, my my family that this, there's a, another world existed in this world, another beautiful free world. I just wanted to show them. That's why, you know, I made a huge decision. It's not easy for us. We are not traveling, you know, to the next cities, next province. So we took another huge risk. But yeah, actually, you know, when I was writing the book, this memoir, what was the most difficult for me was, uh, especially when I described the moments that when I bring in my family out from North Korea, because this story is not like a 20 years or 15 years ago story. It's like just only five years ago story to me. And then the, every single step in China was too painful to us that because, you know, we everybody, we knew that because the Chinese government severely watched, severely searching for North Korean defectors on every, you know, bus and taxi or in the train. So if we were caught, we obviously, we three of us, we knew that what going to happen for us because uh, my because I was having source Korean passport at the time, if I was caught, I would be in public execution inside North Korea. And because of me, my family will be in political prison camp for entire their life. Because we are painfully aware of the situation very well. That's why just every single step was killed us that whenever we encountered with the Chinese police. And then I feel like, uh, yeah, if I die myself, it's okay, but I can't see my family have problem in front of me. That's why it's like we had, I kind of had a lot of heart attack at the, at the time. And uh, yeah, actually, if right now I answered, I asked countless time myself, before I helping my family out, before start the plan, if I knew what what gonna happen in the journey, do I still will try that plan or give up? My answer is I will give up because since I didn't know what gonna happen in the long journey, that's why I tried with a positive hope. And then I, I, we are lucky in the end with strength, wisdom, whatever, with the luck, we are okay. We are one year later, we are finally reunited. But what if we are caught at the time like all other defectors? Because most of the defectors, they were caught in China and then they were repatriated to North Korea and then they were in huge trouble. That's why it's a really painful memory for my family. One final question. Uh, moving from North Korea to the rest of the world, as some people would put it, what was the hardest thing to get used to? Actually, because, you know, to get used to the you know democracy or capitalism, to get used to freedom is really the most difficult thing to do for Norwegian defectors because you know um, we grew up in communism society, which is a co completely censored by the regime, and that we never had any freedom. That we are not, we never choose any 
decision for our life, for all decisions. We never made it. All the time, the regime made for us, for all North Korean citizens. So, which means we were lived as like a human robots, you know? If the regime told us to go here, then we just go there. But when North Korean people have freedom, like in South Korea, it's completely, you know, free society. Because we will never taste freedom. That's why when we have too much freedom suddenly, we don't know where to go, you know? Because we need somebody's hand to help, to give us direction to go, because we never trained to make a decision ourselves. But like suddenly we jumped up to the, you know, from communism to the, to the capitalism, and then, you know, the economy gap is huge. So people, many people even don't know how to use a subway system, banking system, just nothing about it. Just uh, they don't know even how to take a bus. That's really huge for them, for North Korean defectors. So, yeah, my answer is just, you know, who never enjoyed freedom, who never knew about that, it's uh, for them, it's really difficult to accept freedom. It, we need a lot of time to get used to it. That's why right now, you know, many North Korean defectors in South Korea having a hard time. But what was the most make them difficult is because of the prejudice and ISIS status. Because uh, we were separated from South Korea for so long, and then for seven decades. And then during that time, the North Korean people were completely forgotten people for South Koreans. And then when we arrived in South Korea, because of we came from poor country or something, that's why just many North Koreans, we had to suffer. We kind of, we became outsiders. Just, and then that's why many North Korean people, when they're looking for jobs, that they have to hide their identities, even in South Korea, in motherland too. And then and this is the reality right now. So that's why making people difficult. And then that's why actually North Korean defective suicide rate is pretty high compared to ordinary South Korean citizens. Because uh, it's really sad for me to, because, uh, you know, North Korean people to have freedom to get to South Korea, many people even suffered, overcome from tortures and several defections, uh, several repatriations. And then, you know, after repatriation to North Korea, they were tortured a lot severely. We know the reality. And then, but still they escaped from there to get to freedom in South Korea. So in the end, they got real freedom. And you know what happened? Just uh, because because we know painfully that to get to South Korea, how difficult we have to give up everything with even our life. But the reality in South Korea is completely different, and then many people depressed, and then there are some some of them is suicide. So I feel really sad for this reality. But but as time goes by, right now. It's a little bit getting better, the situation. I mean, because many people, they thought, those can people, they thought uh, in the past, until a few years ago or two, three years ago, that people thought that North Korean people are all horrible, like uh, the dictators, the North Korean dictators. Mm -hmm. But right now, more because more North Korean people, North Koreans want to share their story in publicly on the TV, you know, and then when they hear our story, they are crying with us, and then they knew that how it is difficult for us to get to freedom. So they're crying with us and then they feel sympathy for us. But it's, that's why it's a change in positive ways, but to completely, you know, change the atmosphere 
I think we have a lot of time to require it. Well, Ms. Lee, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Hyunseo Lee. She is a defector from North Korea, and she was talking about her life growing up in that communist totalitarian dictatorship and talking about the things she wrote in her book, The Girl with Seven Names. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you found it as enlightening as I did and as interesting as I did. If any of you want to see other shows, you can find us at The Bridgehead on SoundCloud, uh, thebridgehead.ca, uh, where we post often a lot of articles as well, and you can find all of the past shows. So if you'd like to take a look at, at other interviews and other discussions we've been having on this show, please go to thebridgehead.ca. Thanks so much for joining us, and we hope we'll hear you again next week.